Ed Toth, who was born in New London and raised in East Lyme, still treasures the family and friends he grew up with. As for why they saw him infrequently over the last 16 years, well, all is forgiven. Not that there was ever anything much to forgive to begin with. You see, the truth is, Toth is a rock star, at least of sorts. He spent most of that time as the touring drummer for the Doobie Brothers. Before that, he was a member of the popular band Vertical Horizon. And before that, he was studying at the prestigious University of Miami Frost School of Music. On this week's episode of our Leave Work Now podcast, we spent some time talking with the always genial, funny, and informative drummer about his craft, why the Doobie song To Loose Street frightened him when he was a little kid, and why stardom is assured if the first gig you ever play is at a bowling league banquet. I think the first thing I want to say is that if, if my math is correct, I got you having played about... 1,030 gigs over the years with the Doobie Brothers. So I want to go out on a limb and be sort of like Nostradamus here. And I'm going to predict that you played China Grove, Long Train Running, and listened to the music about 1,030 times. Yeah, that sounds about right. With the Doobie Brothers, I mean, you're not not counting all the bar bands before that, you know? (laughs) Okay, so then I want to hit you with my two favorite Doobie Brothers songs and see if they ever made the playlist. Uh, Ukiah, and then in particular, the title track to Toulouse Street. Um, They've totally made the playlist. In fact, about two years ago now, I think it's two years ago, we released a live recording and a live uh, video, DVD, whatever, people are calling them these days of us at the beacon theater. And we played the Toulouse street and captain and me albums in their entirety. So Ukiah popped into the playlist early on. Uh, Cause we would, you know, we would work up all these songs that they either hadn't played for a really long time, or in some cases like the title track to captain and me never. Um, so we would work on these things at sound checks and stuff like that. And once Ukiah kind of came together, we put together a really cool version arrangement of Ukiah. Um, that's not too far off from the recorded version. It's got a little jam section in the middle of it, but um, we were having so much fun playing it. We just popped it into the set. So that was in the set probably almost for almost a, a good six months or so leading up to the beacon gigs, um, which were in November of, I think 2018. So um, yes, we have played both of those songs. Toulouse Street for me is a is a breather because there's no drums. To me, it's the it's the best song ever written about New Orleans. That's by a, someone that's not from New Orleans. That's a great compliment. He he definitely captures that. I remember as a kid because uh, my parents were Doobie Brothers fans, uh, which is how I got into them as a kid. And um, I remember that song used to kind of scare me a little bit as a kid, you know, locked in the room down in New Orleans and my blood's flowing fast. It's like, and of course now as an adult, like, okay, I get that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he really, in New Orleans to me, as somebody who's not from there, um, if I might be so bold as to say to somebody who is from there, like, to me, New Orleans is, it's my favorite city in the United States. Um, not only, it, to, to me, it's the real music city, USA. 
And also, it just, I think it's the most sort of European city in the U.S., even though just the mix of everything is amazing. And in that song, Simmons managed, New Orleans just drips this sort of, um, I was going to say sort of sensuality and, and like not in a sexual way, but just in a, it, it's just got this gloriousness to it. And, and it, it's, it's mysterious and spooky. And Simmons nailed it in that tune. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and, and for the record, I, I am from Dallas, although I did spend, live there and spent a lot of time in New Orleans. But, um, oh, okay, gotcha. Um, but there is, to, as we, there is a rhythm to that city that, that is in the heartbeat of the city, and there is a, you said sensuality, that didn't necessarily mean sex, and I'm saying darkness that doesn't necessarily mean evil. There's just an otherworldly quality to that town, and and you're right. He he really did. He ever talk to you about that song, or did you ever ask him about it? Not really. I you know I've been over the years. I've been a little bit cautious to get too deep into song uh, literal song meanings because you know they they mean something to me. And I kind of don't want to ruin that by finding out that it was about, you know, something stupid. <laughs> you know? A lucky dog he ate or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I was I had a great burger in Toulouse Street and decided to write a song about it. It's like, oh, come on, man. So, you know, I, I would never necessarily want to know that. Um, but yeah, man, that place just has a pulse. Uh, you could be out in the street at four o'clock in the morning with no one else around and you feel like you're being watched you can it, the streets are breathing like there's just a pulse there that it that you that i have found nowhere else uh in the world really certainly not in the united states you mentioned the fact that your parents turned you on to the doobie brothers and and i i remember that Weren't you? Your dad was a musician, and didn't your, wasn't your first ever gig like at a a bowling league banquet or something when you were thirteen? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Nice, uh, nice recall. Um, yeah, my 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 dad still plays. Uh, he lives up in Canada now. Uh, hasn't done much playing in the last year, of course. Nor nor have uh, has any of us really. But um, he still plays guitar. And so that's where all the kind of music stuff comes from. Um, big record collection, all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, he had, when I was, yeah, 13, 14, he had a top 40 band together. And um, the drummer from that band, unfortunately, unexpectedly uh, passed away. And I would occasionally sort of fill in for him at rehearsal if he couldn't make it, because rehearsals were at our house, you know. So if if john couldn't make it i would i would play rehearsals just so they could rehearse stuff and and that kind of thing so after john passed you know my dad said to the guys how do you feel about just having ed do the gig you know and they said yeah that'd be great so yeah the first gig was a bowling banquet that one, that my math teacher happened to be in this bowling league so she was at the gig and we played Long Train Running on that gig. Wow. That's you fantastic. Know? And 
it was a good, it was a glorious day. You know, I got to play my drums for a couple hours and at the end of it, I got a hundred bucks, you know, and it blows my mind that people still want to try to pay you a hundred bucks these days. <laughs> if you're a musician and you're committed to it, the, the payday is a hell of a nice thing to have, but you're sort of already down the road, you know, you're going to do it, I guess. So. Yeah. And I can't complain, man. I've been able to make a living doing this full time since I was 24, 25 years old. So you get no complaints from me. Again, in the, in the context of growing up with your parents' record collection, you are old enough to have been very familiar with what I might call a classic rock repertoire that, that certainly the Doobie Brothers are a part of. Um, so you sort of second generation, you're in your way into that. You were a little young for that, maybe. Uh, yeah. You weren't 18 or 19 at college partying to the Doobie Brothers or Bachman Turner or whatever it might have been. But right. then you found yourself playing in one of the great classic rock bands where you were probably the youngest guy, maybe by far, and you toured with a bunch of acts that were also part of that, whether it's Santana or Chicago or or whomever. What, what was that like? Did you like to have to give, at least for the first few tours, call mom and dad every night and give a report on what <laughs> Carlos had for dinner or whatever? I'll tell you, it was it was it's been really interesting because on on one hand, it's you know I've sort of you know, climbed my personal company ladder and gotten to where I've gotten. And it's all a little bit sort of normal. You you play music with enough people and eventually you're going to, you know, play whether it's a jam or something, you're going to end up playing with somebody you admire or that you're a fan of or something like that. Um, and then I still kind of have pinch me moments of just like, holy crap, like, you know, I remember going to see the Doobies at the Hartford Civic Center in, in uh, the 70s, late 70s, 78. And, you know, we were at a red light looking for parking and a couple limos pulled up next to us. And it was the band on the way to the gig. And as a kid, you just, you know, hanging out the window like, hey, because <laughs> um, it was just so it was it was so different back then because um there was such a mystery to all of it. I mean, these these guys were really superheroes. And I'm not just talking about the doobies. I'm talking about like bands in general, because you didn't see them unless you went to see them in concert. I mean, maybe you'd catch a photo in in Rolling Stone or, or uh, Cream, you know. But other than that, you know, there were like three or four music magazines. There wasn't a newsstand with a music section. There was no Internet. You know, um, I was too young to stay up late to watch Kirshner. So, you know, you didn't see these people unless you went to see them. And they just strolled out in their jeans and whatever they were wearing that day. And you're just like, oh, my God, it's them, you know. So which kind of doesn't exist anymore, um, unfortunately. So I still have had pinch me moments of, of that kind of stuff. And, and on the flip side, you know, my, my dad has been on stage playing with us which has been fantastic. Um, I got to introduce him to Carlos when we uh, when we went through Toronto a couple of years ago. Carlos came, sat in the bus, and chatted with my dad for a good 15, 20 minutes or so, which was wonderful. Because, um, you know, he had Santana records when I was growing up. 
and that kind of thing. I remember doing a gig a few years back. We did a um, like a, a they did a like another no nukes concert out in San Francisco, and um, you know people were encouraged to jam with each other and everything, but there was nothing formal ever discussed. So we're finishing up our set. We're playing in the afternoon, just around sundown. And uh, we're wrapping up our set. We'll listen to the music. Well, we start playing and all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see Jackson Brown, Bonnie, um, uh, Graham Stills and Crosby, like just come out and start singing. And I had a moment where I was just kind of playing along. Of course, I'm behind everybody playing the drums. And I just thought to myself, I'm on stage right now with my record collection. <laughs> like, this is really, really cool, you know? Um, and again, why not? I'd been playing in the Doobie Brothers over 10 years at that point. We did this gig that all these people were on the bill, and they came out and sang on Listen to the Music. Makes perfect sense, you know? But then to sit here and be able to tell that story to you is just like, wow, man. I remember pouring over the No Nukes book from the vinyl album when I was 10 years old, you know, learning about nuclear energy because I was a fan of a band, you know? So it's been a really, really interesting journey for sure. Did you, I remember reading a, an interview with Jason Newsted when he had been the Metallica bass player for, I don't know, however many years. And he was like, and he was a little, it sounded like he was a little bitter. That's how I inferred it, that no matter how long he was going to be in Metallica, and it wasn't that much longer as it turned out, but he was still treated like the new guy and made fun of, et cetera, et cetera. I never get that sense from the interviews I've seen with you online or in drummer, modern drummer or whatever. I feel as though you were treated like family Probably why you could be with them for 15 years, but is that sort of how it worked out? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still a salaried employee, you know, but at the same time, um, you know, these guys are, uh, you know, I have friendly relationships with these guys, um, you know, Christmas cards and all that. So, I mean, bands are a funny thing. Uh, you could do a, a, reality show called bands and the story would probably be the same from band to band you know um it is like family you have your moments um but at the end of the day you're you're doing it playing music together is a really cool thing it's a very communal thing you have to um it's a very caring thing i think you know you're sharing uh something you know with a bunch of people and and sort of doing it together and um yeah i mean i was welcomed into the fold uh, relatively quickly, I think. Um, maybe my story had a little bit to do with it. Maybe not. Um, you know, I was friends with Michael Hasek before. That's how I got the audition was because I knew Mike. Um, Mike was Vertical Horizon fan, as it turned out. And that's how we met. And uh, we just hit it off as people, certainly as drummers. And, you know, this guy was a hero of mine growing up. Um, you know, to tell somebody, you know, I learned how to play my instrument, essentially playing along to your records. Um, and then a few years later, be playing with that drummer. 
you know, beside him in in the in that very band was kind of a neat thing. It's funny, actually, I I was able to meet Knudsen, Keith Knudsen, before he passed, and I told him that very thing. I said, you know, I was uh, I I learned how to play my instrument playing along to to records that, that you made, you know. And Keith said that and some drum lessons. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith was a, he he was a funny dude, and and so was Mike as well. Um, but yeah, that's how I, my entry into that whole world was, again, you get to a certain point where, you know, our thing, the vertical horizon thing was on people's radar. Um, I just about had my jaw drop when I, you know, was reading one of Neil Peart books and he's talking about vertical horizon in, in the book. And it's like, wow, like that's amazing. It's truly amazing. It's just to know that this guy had heard music that I played on, let alone liked it. Um, uh, he subsequently became really good friends with uh, Matt Scannell, uh, the singer from Vertical Horizon. But um, but yeah, all those all those things are just. It's. I I still have moments where I tell those stories, and it's just like, wow, these things happened. They actually happened. It's it's crazy. We did a, a fundraiser. Uh, in Sonoma, California, some years ago, and we had a day off. It was a two-day thing, and the first night we had off, but we were in town, and Ringo was playing with the All-Star Band. So we went down, and we were watching watching the show, and I got a text that basically said during Ringo's set that said, "Ringo wants any and all doobies up for the for the last song, which was with a little help from my friends." And I walked out on that stage and stood next to Greg Bissonette and made jokes with Todd Rundgren while we played with a little help from my friends with Ringo Starr. Like, I couldn't, you can't write that, you know? So it's all these little moments and, and stories are really neat. I, I told a story on, on Facebook last week about uh, throwing darts and drinking a beer with Mary Wilson. Uh, you know, who we lost last week. I mean, it's it's just really, really fun stuff, you know, and we haven't even, and, and we're not even talking about playing the actual music. It's, you know, the, the hang, the, the hangs and, and that kind of thing. It's, um, I miss it, man. I hope we get back to it. We haven't talked about the actual musicianship or the musicality of it. And you mentioned the two guys uh, that most people would associate as the drummers, uh, Knudsen and Hossop. What was it like going from playing with another drummer all night or, you know, for years, and then all of a sudden you were the only drummer? That sort of divides up the dynamic of how you would approach it. You're not necessarily keying off of each other or playing in a synchronous way. You have a little more freedom, I would think, but you still... Um, I don't know. Did you guys play to clip tracks on stage or? Well, the two drummer thing in the doobies is a little odd in that it's not like, um, the Grateful Dead or to, to a more extreme, like King Crimson. Um, a lot of what we played was similar. Um, two guys basically playing the same beat because, you know, back in the seventies, like they, that power thing was a, was a big deal. 
you know, in the in the 21st century, with sound systems being better, in-ear monitors, that kind of thing, two drummers was never totally and completely necessary from a musical standpoint with the Doobie Brothers. Um, in fact, if you listen to those records, there's probably only a couple of tracks on each album that actually has two drummers on it. Um, all the other tracks have a single drummer. Uh, with the exception of one record they made uh, in 1980 called One Step Closer. That's got Keith Knutson and Chet McCracken together on every track. Um, so, yeah, the show's to a click track. Um, basically, so the drummers could, you know, have a point of reference um, and not we wouldn't have to blow our ears out having a ton of the other drummer in the mix. We could just pop in a little bit. Um, so I would generally have his kick and hat in my, in my, uh, in my mix with Mike. Um, when Mike left, uh, or Mike left the road cause he had gotten sick. We had a guy named Tony Pia in and Tony was a lot, was a much more aggressive drummer than Mike was. So I didn't really have much of him in my mix at all. Cause I could hear him. The stage volume was enough. Um, and then with both Mike and Tony, what we would do is we would work out little sections where, you know, hey, you you take this fill here and I'll take this fill here. Um, and, you know, some nights we'd switch it, switch it around. You know, you take the first fill in Long Train and then we'll just go every other, you know. And sometimes a guy would forget, which would be kind of fun. And, you know, we'd smile and make faces at each other. and. Um, and then a couple of things we would set up uh, to play in unison, like some cool little fills that we would play in unison. In fact, when we were on the road with Chicago, we did a big encore where everybody was on stage at the end. So you've got three drummers, you know, playing uh, 25 or six to four, <laughs> you know. And there was a moment in there where we put in, uh, I suggested we put in this famous drum fill from a Frank Zappa song called More Trouble Every Day that drummers love. Uh, Phil and Chester in Genesis have used it together a couple of times. And so we would play that together. And that was always a fun moment where we'd play this cool tom-tom double bass drum fill all three of us together. Um, so Mike and I would do stuff like that with the Doobies and Tony and I would do stuff like that with the Doobies. When Tony left the band, they just decided to hang with the one drummer. And I was a little vocal about it. I wasn't too vocal about it because I knew ultimately it wasn't going to be my decision. But I said, hey, you know, I think I can. This is going to be sort of more of a musical thing for me if if it's just me back there. You know, if you're considering beefing up the rhythm section, I would suggest you get a percussionist. And not like a drum set player who's looking for a gig and not like singer's girlfriend or whatever. Like, let's get a legit percussionist and and so i did the gig by myself for about a year or two i think and then we got mark quinones from the almond brothers to to come by and we were doing some rehearsals in florida which is where mark was living at the time so it was really convenient he just came in for these rehearsals and and played and and um we had a i think we were doing a corporate gig down there and so we had him on the gig it's like, hey, let's see how this goes. And it really was kind of a no-brainer, I think, right after the gig. The guys said, hey, we, you know, 
tour starts in April if you want it. (laughs) So, um, and it was really easy to fall into that with Mark because he had so many years playing with two drummers who weren't, who weren't playing the same thing over and over again. You know, Butch and J-Mo were very much from that sort of dead school. I I think a a good modern example of the two drummer thing is the Tedeschi Trucks band, you know, where, where one of the guys is kind of holding it down, laying it down and the other guys kind of decorating here and there, uh, punctuation here, um, that kind of thing. So it can be done in a, in a very cool musical way. And um, I think all the bands that I mentioned found a way to do that, you know. The first time I ever interviewed you was right after you had joined Vertical Horizon. Um, and you were understandably excited. Uh, you talked at that point about how much you thought of East Lyme and New London. We talked about Fred Shanty probably far longer than we should have. But, uh, you know, now you have toured the world multiple times. At, as you said about New Orleans, you've seen every great city, the European cities and stuff. What's it like now to have that sort of perspective when you think of home? And I know you're living in Pennsylvania right now, but when you think of New London or East Lyme, you now have it against this travelogue of memories uh, of other places in your brain. And has that changed what home means to you? Um, I don't think so, because I, I still feel like I'm home when I'm, when I'm in southeastern Connecticut. You know, I mean, of all the places I've been all over the world and all the places that I could live in that I haven't lived in, like the southern island of New Zealand or Iceland or, you know, some of these absolutely beautiful, pristine places that I've been to, you know, it, there's comfort in in Niantic, you know, where I grew up and, and in New London and in Waterford. My mom still lives in Waterford. Um so, I mean, there's a comfort thing and there's a familiarity there. And I think also that because I'm getting older, my kids are getting older, I just, you, I kind of almost feel the pull. It's like, you know, hey, I'm going out for a walk, but it's like a 30 plus year walk around the world, metaphorically speaking. And I'm, I think I'm slowly kind of finding my way back home. I wouldn't be surprised if sometime within the next, you know, 15 years or so, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm living back in the area or, or, or close to the area. I mean, I'm closer now than I've been in years. So, um, it still feels like home there. Now, I don't want to, uh, to, to talk doobie anecdotes at the, uh, total exclusion of everything else that you are doing or have done. Um, certainly the vertical horizon years were, a big deal. They they got you into a major label band and led down the road where you ended up. Uh, you ever talk to those guys? You in touch? Yeah, I'm still in touch with still in touch with all the guys. Um, I just did a. I haven't talked to Keith in a little bit. The last time I talked to Keith was on uh, the 31st of December because that's his birthday, <laughs> and it was his 50th. And his wife arranged this sort of multi-person zoom call for his 50th birthday and i ended up staying on afterwards for a little while with him and his mom and his sister 
I'm just sort of doing a catch up. Um, talk to Matt from time to time. I usually run into Matt in a in a. Uh, we end up chatting about some some kind of music thing, you know. Hey, have you heard this? Like that kind of stuff. And then Sean Hurley, the bass player, I talk to from time to time as well. Bass and drums, you know, together forever. <laughs> so, and I know Sean lives. Sean lives part time in the area there too. Sean lives part-time in the area there, too. Um, they've got a home, I think, in Mystic or Groton Long Point or something like that, But because um, uh, his wife's from the area there as well. But um, So, yeah, I'm still in touch with all those guys, and, and, you know, I'm glad that that happened. You know, I got a little taste of what it what it's like to be in a popular band, and I still hear the music, usually in the grocery store. But... Um, you know, I still hear a lot of those Vertical Horizon songs, um, and I'm really proud of the work. You know, it's not like it's not like oh, we we made that '80s record and <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> you know, that I'm very proud. Of, I'm very proud of the work. Talk a little bit about Button. Button, uh, yeah, that that was a fun one. So Button is this group that kind of sort of exists between me and uh, John Cowan, who's the bass player in the Doobie Brothers. And one of the best singers you'll ever hear in your life. Um, he made his mark in a group called New Grass Revival uh, with Sam Bush and Bela Fleck and Pat Flynn back in the uh, 80s, 90s. Or I guess he joined in the 70s. It goes back that far. But um, And then Keith Howland is the guitar player in Button, and he's the guitar player for the band Chicago. And of course, we spent a lot of time on the road with those guys. We did a bunch of tours with Chicago. And when I was living in Nashville, uh, Keith lived about 10 minutes up the road from me. So he and I became close as friends and then also as just guys who would get together and jam in the basement. Same as it ever was, man. It never changes. You're 13 years old, you're jamming in the basement. You're, I'm, I'm, I'll be 52 this year and I'm jamming in the basement, you know? Um, so... Uh, we got together uh, basically to put together a little project where we could go out and play some cover tunes, make a few bucks when we weren't on the road. And we picked some sort of oddball cover songs. Uh, you know, we weren't trying to play a bar on Broadway or anything like that. So we were playing things like I'm Not in Love by 10CC and come up with a kind of slow funk arrangement of that song and played a couple Zeppelin tunes and, and for whatever reason, we decided it would be fun to end every gig with war pigs by Sabbath. <laughs> so here I am with the guy from Newgrass revival and the guy from Chicago and we're playing war pigs, you know, um, which was really, really good fun. And pe people would sit in occasionally and, and do stuff. And one day we got together and we just were kind of jamming on nothing just playing together and keith recorded it as you do these days and the next day i got an mp3 from him that was about two hours long just a solid one track because he just hit record and let it and let it go and he said hey i think there's some songs here and then he had a list of time markers where he thought there were some good ideas and sure enough he was right so we got back together and sort of flushed out these ideas and and um before we knew it, we had about 12 tunes and, and we made a, made an album called Button. 
It's on iTunes. I think it's on Amazon. I'm not sure. Um, this is how into it we were. Like, I think it's on Amazon. I'm not really sure. Um, but I know it's on iTunes if, if people want to hear it. And it's, it's one of the most fun projects I've ever been involved in. I think mostly because we didn't know we were making a record. It was a bunch of friends hanging out and creating some stuff together. And we decided to share it with people. I mean, that's about as pure as you can get, right? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, we didn't start thinking about anything until it came time for melodies and lyrics. <laughs> you know, everything else just came together very naturally. In fact, some of the drum tracks on there are from the jam. We kind of ed- kind of edited, like cut and paste some stuff and just kind of put it together. And it made for a performance. So, At what point, Ed, did relatives and friends have sort of a... I don't know, a meeting where they, they got to you and said, you know what, we've had enough Doobie Brothers tour T-shirts for Christmas and birthday present. <laughs> Intervention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, my family and friends have been really cool. I mean, my really good friends in my life are people that were, most of them were my friends before all of this, um, before Vertical Horizon, any of that stuff. Um, so... I've been pretty lucky in that regard. Um, and I'm, I'm good at sort of, well, it's just not that big of a deal, I guess, anymore to, to my family and stuff. Now I'm just Ed, I'm just a jackass. And I just happen to have a neat, I have a neat job, I guess, you know? Um, and I get that. I get that people are interested in it and, and what's it like? And, Oh, can I go backstage? And they go backstage and it's like, yeah, this isn't 1974. Like there's deli tray right over there. And, and, you know, this is a athletic locker room when it's not, you know, being used as a dressing room. Um, it's not quite as glamorous as people think, but no, I, you know, it would be interesting. I should, I should do that. I I've never done that. And I, maybe next Christmas I should just plow everybody with Doobie Brothers merch. You mentioned that you have uh, kiddos, I think. Mm-hmm. Are they interested in music or? Yeah, my oldest just turned 18. She's about to graduate from high school and she wants to go to uh, university to study music. She's been playing violin since she was about six years old and she wants to be a violinist in a symphony. Fabulous. Which I think is great. I mean, show me a kid that wants to play classical music, you know? voluntarily. (laughs) And then my youngest is, uh, she's still a little bit younger. She'll be 14 here coming up in about a month, but, um, she's, I, she prefers to listen to music. I think more than she does perform. She's sung. She's been in a couple of musicals, but I think acting is kind of her thing at the moment. Um, the, the middle school that she goes to, they just happen to have a wonderful drama program. And they've put on high school level productions in this middle school, which has been great. So she's been involved in a couple of those. And um, like I said, she's, you know, she's just 14. She's still, she'll figure it out at some point. So, but they're both musically inclined. They can both carry a tune. And it's great now because we're, you know, I've been, I was very cautious about, sort of shoving music down their throats. So they would hear what I would play around the house and, 
and some of it they didn't they wouldn't like at all and other things they loved we all are enamored with this band from the uk called elbow um fabulous um, fabulous band yeah absolutely to me one of the best bands on the planet right now is 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 elbow their their knack for melody is astounding um and um recently you know my daughter's been getting me to listen to people like phoebe bridgers and um we sort of discovered at the same time this young artist out of England called Arlo Park. And um, it's just been fun. I I made her a very proud parent. I, I recently made my first Kate Bush playlist for my daughter. And uh, and she loved it. I, I said, you know, I'm going to go easy here. Here's 10 tunes. Um, and they weren't the obvious ones either. And she liked pretty much all of them, uh, which was really great. Um, the fun thing about that is I put Don't Give Up on that playlist from Peter Gabriel's So album. And she said, I really need to listen to that album. And so I said, I'm going to send you one track and, you, and it'll make you want to buy the record. And so now she's totally and completely enamored with the song Mercy Street. So Amelia and I, Amelia is my oldest. She and I go back and forth a lot with some stuff. And then every once in a while with my little one, we'll do some stuff like that too. But, you know, my, my oldest is very much into the, she buys vinyl now. She has a, a record player that she loves. And she went to Grimey's in Nashville for the first time recently and dropped some money on some vinyl she was very excited about. And my youngest one is in that camp of like, oh, oh, this is a cool song. Who is it? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> do do I have to know? It's just a good song, <laughs> you know. So she, she's very much twenty first century kid in that regard. Um, are you officially retired? What have you got in the works? You got any idea? What should we know? I am definitely not officially retired. <laughs> um, the 50th anniversary doobie tour is still on the books. Um, we were supposed to go last year. Um, and this is a tour that would be the doobie band as it is now with Michael McDonald. Um, so we're still, we're still planning on doing that tour. Um, when it's going to start is anybody's guess. The dates were rescheduled. I think if you, if you were to go to the website, it says we're going to start in July. I don't think we're going to start in July. I'll be surprised if we start in the fall. Um, most of the buzz in the industry is that the you'll start seeing some shows this year, um, but the bigger tours aren't going to fly until next year. Because there's so much detail in terms of, you know, vaccine and certainly no promoters or venue owners want to put themselves in, in the position of any kind of liability for anything. So once we get over the hump, which it looks like we're starting to, which is wonderful, um, we, you know, we'll get a clearer picture of what's happening. But I've been teaching people. I do online drum lessons. Uh, people can reach me at Facebook or Instagram. There's a little plug um, if they want to take a drum lesson or two with me. And I've done some tracks for some people here and there. And um, other than that, there really hasn't been too much. Our industry pretty much shut down. Well, we cannot thank you enough for, for taking the time. It's good to catch up with you. Um, and I guess 
I guess I have just one last question before I let you go. And that would be when they do clear the 50th anniversary tour and Patrick Simmons or Tom Johnston calls and says, hey, Ed, we're going to go. I just want you to make some fierce, outlandish backstage writer demand for me. I don't care what it is, just so you can go a little power play and go, Pat, Tom, I'm ready to go, but I want this on the rider. What would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, a, a lot of the good ones have been done already. I mean, you can't beat the brown M&Ms, you know? No, you can't beat that. But. I don't know. That's a that's a great question. I would really have to put some thought into that. Do they ever even ask you guys what you want? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we've been able to, particularly with the bus and then also with backstage, like is there anything you want on the on the rider? You know, and of course, if it isn't anything too outlandish, we'll get it. <laughs> so if I say, hey, can you get almond milk for the bus or Lucky Charms or whatever, you know? Simmons will look at me funny because there's nothing organic about it. And I'll say, hey, you do you and I'm going to do me, you know? I put oat milk in it. What more do you want? (laughs) 